I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. And I'm so excited to have Dr. Sharif Hill with me here today. Uh, we've, I, we've been following each other on social media for several years now, and uh, she lives in Atlanta, and it's really exciting. This is our first time actually talking face-to-face, which seems ridiculous. And she is coming to us from her maternity leave, um, so she's uh, really grateful to that. Um, Dr. Hill is an associate professor of gynecology and obstetrics at Emory University School of Medicine here in Atlanta. She's a graduate of Xavier University in Louisiana and the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. She completed her residency in OB-GYN at Duke University where she served as the chief resident with a GME concentration in patient safety and quality improvement. She has a clinical interest in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery for manage of gynecological disorder, disorders, particularly abnormal uterine bleeding and fibroids and we'll get to that a little bit later, uh, in addition to comprehensive obstetrics and well-woman care. Beyond the clinical setting, Dr. Hill serves as the wellness ambassador and chair of the wellness committee for the Department of Gynecology and Obstetrics, which is how we originally got connected, uh, and as the director of the resident wellness program. Her research interests include resident well-being and determinants of preterm birth. She maintains her own wellness through participation in public service, mentorship of local students, quality time with her husband, three children, extended family, and friends. Uh, Cherie, thank you so, so much for joining today. It's such an honor to have you here. Thank you so much, Joe, for having me. Like you said, we've been following each other on social media, and it's nice to finally, you know, put a face to the name and have some real conversation today. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and how uh, one of your research interests is, is preterm labor. And, and I think we're gonna be getting into a little bit more today the, um, for anyone listening who is not aware that there are worse and worse outcomes for black women, um, maternal fetal outcomes, um, no matter what the socioeconomic status is. So we're gonna be getting into that. But I wonder if you could share a little bit about your, your journey through through medical training um, and what brought you to the, the specific interest that you have and, and how, how you've seen systemic racism play a role in that, in that development. Definitely. Yeah, so I think my first interest in birth outcomes really started as a medical student when I was contemplating going into OBGYN. So I was involved with a research study with one of the maternal fetal medicine fellows at UCLA and we were looking at different markers for gestational diabetes and how that then may you know turn into different outcomes for the baby macrosomia for example the baby being you know born too large and then if you have gestational diabetes you can then be at risk for other conditions like preeclampsia high blood pressure in pregnancy etc that can then lead to you having to deliver your baby early which prematurity and those sorts of things can then lead to poor outcomes for, for your little one. And then if you're starting off life born prematurely for the next generation, that can then have health impact um, that then kind of gets amplified, amplified, excuse me, in further generations. So it started there at UCLA. 
I loved my time in Los Angeles, but the population I would say, at least for the residency training, wasn't exactly what I was looking for. So I applied pretty broadly for residency. And um, I looked at Emory at the time. I also looked at Duke. And at Duke, I was thoroughly impressed with the dedication to diversity within the cohort of residents, as well as the leadership. And they had a really strong maternal fetal medicine division. Um, the former ACOG chair, um, Dr. Haywood Brown, was actually chair at the time that I was interviewing. So when I interviewed there, they were doing a lot of work looking at the postpartum experience. And unfortunately, particularly in Durham, North Carolina, we had a lot of like lay midwife deliveries and we had a lot of preeclampsia, a lot of prematurity, and a lot of those outcomes were occurring in black women. So once I interviewed there, I knew that was the, the place for me. And I thankfully matched at Duke and spent my four years there. Then I was looking for a bigger city and my husband, uh, full disclosure, is from Atlanta. So we, we relocated to Atlanta for my, my permanent job. And I've been here at Emory for the past, wow, seven and a half years. And um, so kind of same thing, like once you develop an interest, when opportunities come up that that align with those interests, uh, as soon as I heard about this um, NIH study looking at Black women and preterm birth outcomes, um, I immediately connected with um, Dr. Dunlop and um, have been really active over the past um, over five years in helping to recruit Black women um, for these studies. So when it comes to the structural racism aspect, you know, there's no simple answer, but I think that one place to at least dig deep is to gather more information, gather more data, and at least we're starting to look at it and try to figure out, okay, what are the nuances that exist in the healthcare system with the patients themselves, with the providers themselves that may contribute to these outcomes? What have you experienced um, in terms of bias? Um, Because I think a lot of what I've heard, a lot of these outcomes are are uh, due in part to implicit bias from healthcare professionals who don't understand that they have it, wouldn't wouldn't ever say, oh, I have bias, I think this or that of of people who look like this or that. But um, what has been your experience like with your, amongst colleagues in your training, the way you see black women treated, um, do you notice a, do you notice a difference, um, in your own, in your own, you, you're on, you just had your third child. So have you noticed right. treatment? And, and I know that you have, you've got some good connections in, um, in the ob world. So you were able to be pretty selective about who delivered your <laughs> baby, but, but like, what have you, what, how do you see bias playing out in, in your field? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think first up is recognition. So one thing I will say I'm very proud of within our division is that we have had a lot of discussion about implicit bias. So um, Dr. Heron is one of the um, associate deans for diversity, equity, and inclusion at Emory. And she came to our division and we did like implicit bias testing. We had some pretty open communications amongst our group. And if you go to Emory Midtown's website and look at the OB providers, you know, we've got the full range, young, old, black, white, um, you know, gay, 
heterosexual, lesbian, like we have the full gamut of diversity. So I feel like we were able to have some pretty open discussions, which I think was like step one. Now, step two is then when you're having these discussions to kind of recognize we all have bias. Like just because I'm a black woman doesn't mean that I'm exempt from having bias. And I think when we're able to start unpacking that information and being open and honest with one another, it then makes maybe some of, for example, like the white men in the group feel like, okay, I don't have to feel so guilty because I'm not the only one who's experiencing bias. So then how that translates into like the clinical realm, I think because we have those discussions, we try to make sure that we're intentional with how we care for our patients. But I will say, you know, sometimes on the ward, when a woman comes into triage, for example, where they're not necessarily being admitted to the hospital, but trying to figure out if it's time for admission. Sometimes if it's, you know, a black woman, maybe there are already certain assumptions that are made about her pain control, for example. Mm. You know, oh, she's tough. Um, she, she may not be in as much pain as she says she is. She's drug seeking. Um, these are things that you sometimes hear um, behind, behind the scenes. And so it's up to us as providers to, you know, take patients at face value. If they say they're in pain, then trust that they're in pain and treat said pain. Um, but I would say pain is probably one of the biggest areas where I see it. Um, I would say another area, we don't have a ton of sickle cell patients, but kind of along that same line of, of pain, you know, in pregnancy, thankfully at Midtown, we do have like a sickle cell um, provider who we're able to call, but I, I would say that's another area where it tends to be a lot of black women who have sickle cell, but if you don't treat the crisis, they can have a really poor outcome. So I think just remembering, yes, we have bias, but certain diseases are going to affect certain groups disproportionately. And so we have to make sure that we're taking care of those people. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I did an interview with Dr. Nicole Peoples um, several months ago, which she's a, she's a black woman. Do, do you know her? No, no. You, you nodded and smiled, so it, I thought you maybe knew who she was, but um, she's an Atlanta doc also, and she's a hospitalist, and she, mm -hmm. we talked about her biases against sickle cell, and then she had a daughter with sickle cell, so then she was like seeing it from the mother's perspective and recognizing mm -hmm. all those ways that we were judging our patients with sickle cell based on their pain behavior or lack thereof. Yes. Was totally wrong and, mm -hmm. and not patient patient centric and, and very much biased. And so she kind of was able to see how she had been raised in the system as a doctor to, to encounter those patients um, and, and how it was really not helping them at all. So it's, it's interesting that you, that you brought that up. I hadn't thought about that in terms of, pregnancy as well. So it's obviously going to make someone much, much higher risk. Oh, definitely. And all that bias, like just packed into. Into one. Exactly. And I think the other thing too, is I mentioned a little bit before, like the postpartum experience. I think one thing that we've spoken to other providers about within the field of OBGYN is connecting with other providers. So like the ED or the emergency department, um, the cardiologist, in recognizing, you know, black women have a higher mortality rate or maternity mortality rate. You're most likely to die from pregnancy in that first like 24 
to seven days, 24 hours to seven days after delivery. So you need to, you need to look at a woman and say, oh, she's a black woman. She's at high risk. So when she comes in through the emergency department and her blood pressure is, you know, 170 over 110, you can't just say, oh, you know, it's probably just another black woman with hypertension. You have to raise the alarm sometimes and recognize okay, I'm seeing you, the whole person, and one of your risk factors is being a Black woman, so we're going to be aggressive about treating these, these values that we see, treating you as the patient, and making sure that we're not blowing it off. Um, and, you know, preeclampsia, eclampsia is definitely one of the areas that women are still dying from in that postpartum period. How, so... Can you give us a general sense of how pervasive this problem is, the maternal fetal mortality? I don't, I don't have any need for you to quote statistics or specific numbers, but like, how bad is it for people listening who are not in healthcare, for people listening who are not Black and may not know these things? Can you give us a sense of like, how big is this problem? So it's a, so when you look at the nitty gritty numbers, like if you look at the entire nation, maternal mortality for the U.S. I think is higher than it should be for a developed nation. So we um, have probably somewhere around like 20 to 25 deaths per 100,000 women, which doesn't sound like a large number, but it's, it's high. And then in Georgia, it's even worse. I believe we are the worst state for maternal mortality, if not the second worst state for maternal mortality. And part of that I think is we're in the deep South and there definitely has to be some systemic racism involved. And then part of it is Georgia has a lot of rural areas that just don't have OBGYNs. There's an OBGYN shortage in the state and that contributes to outcomes. And then black women are almost three times more likely to die in childbirth or in that subsequent year than white women. So for a white woman who has graduated high school, she will still have better birth outcomes than a black woman with a doctorate. White women, if they get married, that then becomes protective for their maternal health outcomes. For black women, we don't see that protective feature for marriage either. And, you know, I can't help but think that there's definitely some interplay with systemic racism there. For sure, yeah. So, yeah, I think there's a tendency, there's a tendency in, in the, the medical mind, I think, to like gaslight everything that doesn't like sound like what we want to hear. Yes. You know? And it's, it, it, so it's very easy. And for anyone, for, and, and particularly for white people, um, I can't speak for all white people. I can speak for myself, but a, a tendency to want to be like, oh, well, that's just education or that's just, oh, that's just lifestyle or this or that. But this, what's, I think, particularly remarkable, and it shouldn't have to be, but this data shows that it's women, black women of all socioeconomic statuses, all, all um, education, levels whether or not they're married and so and so that like familiar need to be like oh well it's just because of these things that are also caused by systemic racism uh stereotypes that we may have um 
lack of access that black folks might have, like those are also caused by, those aren't inherent to black people. Those are, so there's this, this, this need to like not have it be that uncomfortable and painful um, right. and wrong. Exactly. Well, yeah, there was, I don't know if you heard about the, um, the resident in, I want to say she was in Indiana who passed away, but I mean, young black woman educated, she's in the medical field herself. And, you know, obviously I don't know all the details. I wasn't part of her care. And I, I know, I'm sure that the physicians who cared for her tried their best, like no physician ever wants to lose a patient, but my goodness, that made ripples through the media, through, I know my own healthcare circle, my patients coming into my office, literally having anxiety that I was going out on maternity leave because they're like, Dr. Hill, like, I came to you because you're a black woman and all these black women are dying. And can you make sure that I'm not going to die when I have my baby? And I mean, imagine trying to unpack that in a 15 minute visit, which is really probably only a 10 minute visit. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's really been an interesting place. Yeah. Like I said, going through pregnancy recently myself and trying to kind of grapple with some of those feelings, even myself. And it's just, it's like another example. I mean, every, every interview I do, I learn so much, but it's yet another example of privilege because I don't, and it's white privilege. It's not just economic, financial education privilege. It's, I don't know of any white woman who's had to go to their doctor and say, I chose you because you're white. Mm -hmm. You're going on maternity leave. I'm afraid that my baby's going to die. Can you connect me with another, like, like, out of legitimate fear that their baby's going to die because of their skin color or that they're going to have bad outcomes because of their skin color. Like, it's just not anything. Yes. Anxiety about all the things, pregnancy. Right. Yeah. I've never been pregnant, but like, I know that, that it has got its own, it's, it's fraught anyway, but having right. that additional layer. Um, and then, and then the stress of that, because mm -hmm. it's not imagination. It's, Right, driven. Uh, so then, and then the stress and that that impact on on pregnancy as well. Do you have thoughts about that part of it, the the additional stress component? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's one area that we're also looking at in that study that I mentioned is looking at like does chronic stress then lead to like increased inflammation and and are those inflammatory markers then somehow relating to you having a preterm delivery, for example, or if you're stressed, is that going to then lead you to potentially have different eating behaviors that's going to lead to obesity that then may lead to a poor outcome? Um, or is that stress literally going to cause your blood pressure to go up and that's going to lead to preeclampsia, et cetera? So I definitely spent a lot of time in my visit and I think that's probably personally why I've gravitated toward like self-care and wellness and um, other areas of my life is because I feel it's really important for our patients to take some time for themselves and start working on stress reduction. So I'm often talking to my patients about how are you managing stress? Like, don't get me wrong, we need to talk about all the medical stuff, but that's just as medical. You know, what are the things that you can do for yourself? Because you can't control who's going to take care of you the day you come into the hospital. And 
So what are the things that you can control? And so that could be, yeah, a brief meditation, yoga, therapy, exercise, time with friends, whatever it may be. I try to make sure that I'm incorporating that into my visit. And then even just that time having a real conversation with my patient and listening to them and not blowing it off, I think they tend to really appreciate that I'm, you know, listening to their concerns because a lot of people feel like their doctors cut them off, uh, you know, whatever it is within 20 seconds of talking and, and trying to bring that to, to my patients. Yeah. And I think there's probably, I don't know if being complete, I'm just trying to think if there's any time in your life where you're more vulnerable than when you're delivering a baby. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> like, I'm trying to like, is that more than like, if you're like under anesthesia for a, like a heart surgery, maybe, but like, right. Right. But being vulnerable and aware at the same time, because I I agree, under anesthesia, you're definitely vulnerable, but there's something unique about that birth experience. I mean, even C-sections, right? Our patients are awake having surgery performed on them. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. What? So it's interesting. I'd like to share an experience I had. I did my training at Emory and I actually wanted to do OB-GYN and ended up, ended up really like talk, liking talking about heart murmurs and like dissecting those. And I was like, I think I need to go into internal medicine, but yeah, <laughs> but I delivered it great. And I don't know what, what it's like there now, but in terms of supervision, but I delivered babies with my intern mm-hmm. with no attending around. Mm-hmm. And this one woman had this gigantic episiotomy, which is a tear for anyone listening right. to know what that is. And we sewed it up just the two of us. Mm-hmm. And this woman spoke Spanish only. And so we weren't even able to communicate with her. And none of us, we weren't like bad people. But right. that was kind of like what our training is. And so we didn't have an interpreter there. God knows what her like pelvic floor function is at this point mm-hmm. in her life. Because this was in, I don't know, 2002. Right. But what are your thoughts about that? And like safety net hospitals and access to care in that way. And it, the, the treatment, it's like the treatment of black and brown bodies don't deserve there's this notion that somehow like anything we can give them is enough and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not i don't think that's correct or it should be that way but what are your what are your thoughts about that and have there been advances yeah i mean that immediately made me think of my third year medical school rotation like i said i trained at ucla and so i was at harbor ucla which is kind of similar to grady but probably a slightly higher latina population and I remember one delivery and an attending came in the room and we all were almost shocked and horrified. Like, did we do something wrong? The attending is here. Like we're being supervised right now. And um, I think the culture has changed. Um, I primarily deliver at Emory or I only deliver at Emory Midtown. Um, But what I hear at Grady is that the cohort of attendings who are there are much more responsive and medical legal rise need to be in the room. Um, Dr. Lindsay is one of the maternal fetal medicine physicians at Grady. And I know he's on the maternal mortality review committee and they look at all of the um, maternal maternal deaths in the state of Georgia and he's at Grady. And so I think he's helping trying to, you know, change some of the culture there as well. But I, I do think it's, it's a challenge because sometimes people think, like you said, well, at least they're getting care, you know, at, at least they're not delivering at home. 
but I think we have to do better and make sure that there's better funding. You know, there was that whole window of time where it was questionable as to whether or not Grady was going to close. And it's like, we need Grady. Um, they just did this huge renovation to their labor and delivery, like several million dollar project. And so, you know, they've looked at other models like centering pregnancy, where women will go through pregnancy uh, as a cohort together. And you see some improved outcomes for those women who participate in those programs. They have midwife care there. So I think that there definitely have been some advances, but we also need providers who are willing to go into safety net hospitals and, and work with a population that may not have as much access. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of, it's a little bit horrifying to think of the circumstances we've some of our patients were put in it because they didn't have any other choices, you know? And exactly. Yes, trainees certainly didn't know any better. It was just like what we did. Hi there, Dr. Jill Wiener here. This podcast is sponsored by Conscious Anti-Racism, my online course with Dr. Maisha Claiborne, created for listeners like you who are eager to learn practical tools that will help you find your place in the fight against systemic racism. We even have a CME accredited version for healthcare professionals. Visit ConsciousAntiRacism.com for more information. Now back to the episode. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you'd be open to talking a little bit about like the history of, uh, of mistreatment of Black women in, in medicine, particularly in OB-GYN. Uh, we talked about that a little bit before the interview. Because yeah. um, I, I feel like we, we, we keep hearing about the distrust of the healthcare system by Black people. And, and one of my guests recently, um, called it a, a broken trust rather than a distrust because the distrust is almost putting the onus on the people who have been mistreated. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I was like, yeah, that's really, really good because it's not like, it's not there for, it's, it's there for a reason that, exactly. that problem with trust. So can you talk a little bit about that? And a lot of people may not know what you're, so maybe, maybe, maybe trigger warning for, for some people, but. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think, what most people think of is more recent, like the Tuskegee experiment, but really this, you know, broken system, this broken trust dates way further back into slavery. So um, there was a physician, Dr. Marion Sims, who's often kind of quoted as the, the godfather, grandfather of um, obstetrics and gynecology. And he had three slave women, Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy, who unfortunately, because of their delivery, their vaginal deliveries, had problems with chronic fistulas, which is a connection between the vagina and either the bladder where the urine comes out or the rectum where your stool comes out. And so he performed countless, countless like prolapse and pelvic floor surgeries on these slave women, often without anesthesia um, because they didn't feel pain. Um, re Just real quick, for anyone mm -hmm. listening and not seeing that, when she said they didn't feel pain, there were air quotes there. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that was yes, what he was saying, but <laughs> I just want to clarify that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> keep going. Definitely did. And it's just tragic to think that, you know, that these women were subjected to these sorts of experimentations for 
a very long time. And then he, I mean, there was a statue that was put up of him. There was a speculum that's named after him. And so I'd say over the past several years, actually one of my residents, I'll give him a shout out, um, Dr. Kesley Robertson, um, he did a grand rounds and really highlighted some of these things. He spoke at the um, NMA about these slave women and we really need to amplify their names and the sacrifice that they made to then um, lead to some of the surgical advances that we have now. Mm -hmm. So that's one aspect, I would say probably one of the more traumatic, horrifying um, historical pieces where you can have women feel like their bodies are not respected um, by their providers, abused by their providers. And then more recently, um, sterilization has been another area where historically there um, has been a lack of trust. And part of it would be just unsanctioned sterilizations, women basically having others dictate when they were done having children. Um, the accidental severing of the tubes because it was felt that the, the woman had had too many children. And so there are now laws in place and waiting periods in place to try to avoid some of these issues where a woman has to now sign a piece of paper, if she has Medicaid, wait 30 days if it's a non-emergent setting versus 72 hours if it's an emergent setting to have their, their tubes tied. But, you know, it, it gets deeper than that because now some people feel that's a barrier because then you do have women who want to make the choice to have a sterilization and then they can't make that choice because they didn't sign the paper 30 days ago. So it's a very complicated system that it's, it's not just like racism, but maybe some misogyny in there as well and paternalism and, and other people making choices about women's bodies. That is... Yeah, that's something that I, I had not heard uh, a lot about. Is that something like when when did when did has that stopped? Is that something that has and, and when? No, I mean I on my maternity leave got a notification that I had I, I missed the form that I needed to sign on sterilization. So I mean this mm -hmm. is definitely still the case now that you need those sort of mandates. I, I don't know the exact year, but I want to say somewhere in the 70s to 90s, I'm sure is around the time where those forms were created, but I'm not, I'd have to look it up to be sure. But, but I guess what I was asking about, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was saying definitely for the entirety of my medical training. Yeah. Um, I, I, what I meant was, are the, are the sterilizations still happening without permission? But it sounds like that you know, I don't, I would say, I don't think so. Um, I think what some providers have to do a better job of is really clarifying with the patient that this is permanent. Um, there are various ways that you can sterilize a woman. And I can think of one particular situation where a woman thought that her tubes were, quote, just being cut and tied. But now the trend is to remove the entire tube because that offers some benefit for cancer risk reduction. But it was alleged that the, the provider didn't clarify that they were removing the entire tube. And so when she had a new partner and wanted to look into tubal reversal, there, there was no tube to reverse because the tube was entirely removed and this patient was very distraught. So I'm not aware that 
unsanctioned sterilizations are still going on, but I think that one, you shouldn't choose sterilization if you're not completely sure, but let's be honest, regret happens, life circumstance changes, and so you need to know what type of tubal ligation you're having and yeah. whether or not it can be reversed. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just thinking about ICE detention camps and, and how that's happening again. It's not, yeah. it's not Black women, but it's, it's Latinx women. And um, there's been reports of hysterectomies, I think. Like, yes. I, I definitely heard about that. I don't know all of the details, but it just sounds pretty atrocious. Yeah, exactly. And like, again, you want to be like, no way. But mm -hmm. I think right. the more ridiculous it is, the more, <laughs> the more I'm the willing more, to. Right. Unfortunately, yeah. that's real. Because <laughs> it's like, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. So um, I'd love for you to share a little bit about you're you're an expert in minimally invasive surgery for fibroids, and you were talking about how in that even in that field there's disparities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when, once you mentioned the word hysterectomy, that definitely made me think about that. So you know, at some point in a woman's life, she may experience abnormal bleeding. She may experience um, abnormal bleeding because of tumors in her uterus known as fibroids and go to her doctor trying to figure out how can that be remedied. And one of the areas that we're seeing some disparities is access to minimally invasive care for those conditions. So it's known that black women are more likely to be offered a hysterectomy at a younger age than white women. So they may not be offered other adjunct treatments beforehand, whether that's certain medications or procedures you can do with a radiologist or maybe just simple removal of fibroids with a little camera. And we know that when a woman then goes for her hysterectomy, there was actually a big study that looked at size of the uterus, other medical comorbidities, like was the woman obese, was she a smoker, et cetera. And even when they controlled for all of those factors, black women were still more likely to be offered what we call open surgery, meaning like a, a larger cut across the abdomen, as opposed to that laparoscopic or minimally invasive surgery. Now, some trends have changed over time. I believe that particular study was done in like the early 2010s, like mid 2015s. And then as more and more people are trained in minimally invasive surgery, we see a little bit of the leveling out where more black women are offered minimally invasive surgery, but it still doesn't approach the numbers um, for, for white women. Um, so yeah, so there's like, it feels like there's not an, an aspect of healthcare that hasn't been that hasn't been touched. And so are you, is this NIH study that you're doing, that one's more for preterm birth? Yeah, yeah, that's more for preterm birth. And then um, for fibroids, clinically, yes, I, I take all the referrals and definitely try to remove fibroids where I can, particularly it'll come up for women sometimes when they're trying to conceive and a woman who is going to potentially get pregnant wants to be able to bounce back and get back to her life a little quicker. So being able to offer her fibroid removal through a minimally invasive approach, as opposed to a big open surgery, um, is definitely gonna have better health benefits, you know, lower um, blood loss, uh, shorter recovery time, those sorts of things. So I love to be able to advocate for women to 
look into those options. I'm not the only one in Atlanta, but definitely within the Emory system, I would say I see a lot of patients who I'm able to help, which is great. Yeah, that's awesome. So we are running out of time. I would love for you to share if there's anything, um, any organizations you would like people to check out or um, also share, your, we'll put your social media and everything in, in the show notes. But, um, but if there are uh, social media handles you want to share, other organizations for people who are interested in learning more about maternal fetal outcomes and black women, what they might be able to do to help, or if there's any physicians listening, any last parting words uh, for them in terms of their approach to the care of black patients? Yeah, I think um, organization wise, I mean, I still always defer to ACOG, which is kind of our governing body. And then there's a big campaign from the CDC, um, listen to her and her stands for something. Um, but that's another place where they're trying to listen to black women about maternity and um, initial like neonatal care. Um, there are some other groups like Black Mamas Matter. I've attended their conference. They do a lot of advocacy around black maternal outcomes. The fibroid organization I would recommend checking out would be We Can Wear White. And um, their founder has a Instagram page that is pretty active. And then my own Instagram handle is Sheree C. Hill, MD. That's C-H-E-R-I-E-C Hill, H-I-L-L-M-D. And to all of my providers who are listening, I think, yeah, just if you can slow down a moment and listen to your patients and recognize that some of their fears are, are real. They are founded. And taking that time to listen can allow us to be better physicians and really think in the moment when you're making certain clinical decisions, you know, are you, are you looking at the whole picture? That's so important. Thank you for sharing that. Um, all right. Well, Sheree, thank you so much for joining me um, and uh, for sharing your expertise and experience. And um, I just thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is great. I look forward to working together more and yeah, we'll have to meet up for some yoga or some coffee, something. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.